At this time, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. If, uh, if you've been with us, you know that we're going through a series in John right now. And last week, we came to the, the passage on the cross in John chapter 19. And we talked about the cross. We talked about Jesus dying on the cross. And so you'll notice this morning we're not continuing on in John. But actually what we're going to do is we're going to pause. And we're going to focus the next couple of weeks on the cross, its implications, all different aspects of it, forgiveness. It is a subject so rich and so deep that we're going to pause for a little bit and dig deeper into it before we move on in John. And so this morning, Dean is going to be preaching to us from Romans chapter 3, this passage that some of you know pretty well, Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. I'll invite you to follow along with me. If you need a Bible, there are these blue books on the chairs around you. Feel free to take one. And if you don't have one, uh, feel free to take one home with you this morning. But let's read this in uh, Romans 3, starting in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're taking the next month or so, and we're looking at the cross, and we're looking at the implications of it for everyday life. You know, what difference does it make is always a good question to ask, even of the gospel. And um, uh, speaking of a difference... uh, Back in March of this year, an amazing thing happened in the Los Angeles Marathon. Dr. Frank Meza, a 70-year-old runner, broke the world record marathon for a 70-year-old, crossing the line at 2 hours and 53 minutes. Guys, that's a pretty breathtaking feat right there. Meza already had quite the reputation in the community, He spent his free time giving low-cost health care among the poor. He mentored Latino students, and he even volunteered as a track coach at the Los Angeles Loyola High School. For all intents and purposes, Dr. Frank Meza's achievement couldn't have happened to a better guy, except for one thing. Dr. Meza cheated in the race. When he crossed the lines, race officials had tons of questions 
uh, as the, the, the 70-year-old's time, the next 70-year-old's time was four hours and 10 minutes. Videos showed that Dr. Meza left the race at one place, supposedly to go to the restroom, and he came back on the course at a very different location, cutting five kilometers of the race from his race. Now, here's what's interesting. It was not enough that the actual race official's judgment uh, was very clear about what he had done. Marathoners, apparently, and I didn't realize this, are very serious about legit times. In fact, um, uh, they, there is um, a, a website called marathoninvestigation.com that is dedicated to holding cheaters publicly accountable. That website set their sights on Dr. Meza and dug up old news on him. Apparently, he had been disqualified twice for cheating in other races. One thing you can say about the whole matter is this. Justice matters to us. Clearly, in major competitions of sports or in business, dare I say, even in politics, we want things done right and fairly. For all who are involved, we want people to be held accountable for things like cheating. And that's because we all have a sense of what's right and wrong to some degree. Today in Romans 3, we're going to look at what's right from someone else's point of view, God's point of view. And while we are all pretty quick about demanding justice and things uh, being done right, which is legitimate in many ways, the question in our text today will center about on justice and righteousness relative to God himself. And this will take us to the cross, to the cross here in Romans chapter 3. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to ask two basic questions of our text. What does the cross of Christ do for God and for us regarding right and wrong. And what difference does that make for us here and now in, in our lives today? Now, you can find your outline on the screen or even on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along, so I commend that to you. But let's just dive into Romans chapter 3 here. In verse 19, where Paul, we're jumping in the middle of an argument, says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And this is key. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, lot there. We are jumping in the middle of, of, of an argument that Paul is making really about the human condition. Uh, from God's point of view. And what he said in, in Romans 1 through 3 thus far is simply this. God has set up a race, and he has rules to the race, and he's the official overseeing the race, the judge, if you will, overseeing the race. He has to be run by all of us. Everyone runs this race with God, and he is the primary audience. Everyone does. So, uh, just like uh, this text says he is the judge of the race, and just like we have judges in all kinds of venues of our lives, be it in sports or in courts, we have a God who is watching our race. 
Now, the whole of Scripture says that God is a righteous and holy judge. And he, as a result, expects us to be righteous and holy in our running of the race. Here's the Just like Dr. Frank Meza, we get off the road course that God set out. We try to come up with shortcuts. And Romans 3.23 describes this shortcut by calling it sin. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when Paul says all here, he's talking about everybody who's ever lived, including me. All have fallen short of God's glory. We have broken the rules of the race. That's the argument Paul is making this, uh, at this point. Now, here's what that means when we're talking about all. He's saying that for those who've never come near religion and who think Christianity is this kind of weird thing, chapter 1 of our text says that Paul uh, talks about how sin and running the course can get so out of control and away from what God intended in the race that God hands us over to our own sin. He says, okay, if you really want to not run the course for a prolonged period of time and run from me, go do it and experience all that goes with that. Go experience the hardships and the pain that sin brings, and you'll realize how, how, how bad your darkness really can be. And at that point, God's hope is you'll long for something different. Now, the interesting thing is in Romans 1 through 3, Paul talks about in Romans 2, not just the people who've never kind of darkened the door of a church or not into Christianity in particular, really any religion, he talks about the religious people too in Romans chapter 2. And he says, basically, it's easy for us as religious people to look at messy sinners and say, well, at least I'm not that bad. At least I obey the rules. But here's the thing. In Romans 2, Paul challenges that and says, uh, no, you haven't actually obeyed the rules. You're a sinner too. See, the two problems with religious people like us, like me, <laughs> is this. First thing is this, religious types will actually come up with their own rules to replace the rules of God. We find this in Jesus' own story when we were looking at the book of John with the Pharisees who came up with alternative rules that they could manage versus dealing with the unmanageable rules of God and his law. So sometimes we religious folks will come up with our own rules. But that brings up a second thing. That brings up the second thing. And the second thing goes like this. We actually will go and refuse uh, to obey the rules in many ways. This past week, or, or a few weeks ago, I read an article. It was interesting about a woman who is apparently a menace driver around the city of Durham, North Carolina. I call her a menace driver because she's well-known in the area. She regularly gets into fender benders. She cuts people off. And everybody knows who she is because she's a, the, the police pull her over regularly. She's apparently been cited with over 30 kinds of a tickets for different kinds of unsafe moves and things like that. But here's how everybody knows who she is. She has a license plate that says, Stay humble. <laughs> Stay humble. This is the condition of the human heart, that we want to be humble. We will tell the world to be humble, 
but we won't handle humility in our own way, even in our driving. This shows us something about the human heart when it comes to God's law. We either won't actually obey it, or even worse, we cannot actually obey it. And that's what I want to address next, that we can't actually obey God's law. Especially, I want to say this to us religious types, because we play the comparison game with the irreligious. All right? And here's how the comparison game goes. See that rope right there on the wall? See that one going, coming down from the ceiling there? Imagine that rope is a rope that we have to climb to get from God on the floor, uh, from our world up to God on the ceiling. Now, what we typically think of the rope to get to God, just get, some, get a chunk of it right, at least more than the guy below me. But here's the issue with that. God's standard in his law is that you have to climb all the way to the top of the rope and get it right 100% of the time. You have to obey his law in thought, word, and deed every day, 24 hours a day, 365 days a week, and do keep going up that rope every day and never get it wrong. Now, I got to tell you, when you start playing the comparison game, we all start falling pretty short at this point, don't we? I mean, I can tell you, Mother Teresa, somebody I've always really respected, and she was a godly, holy woman. She did some amazing things with the poor in Calcutta. I bet if she were here, she'd say, yeah, I probably only get about to 20% of the rope. That's only how high I can get to. And God bless our brother, Billy Graham, who passed away in the, la- in the recent past. I bet if Billy Graham were here, he'd say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not up there with a, with a Mother Teresa. I bet I could only get 15% of the rope. And I got to tell you guys, when it comes to me, I only get about 5% of the rope, maybe not even that much. So when you play the comparison game, we find out that we all fall short of the 100% of God's glory at the top of the rope. This is the problem Paul is talking about here when he says the works of the law do not justify us. That no matter how you try hard, even as a Christian, even as a religious person, you will never hit the 100% mark. It's impossible for us because we cannot keep the law. We will not keep the law on our own. So, where does that bring us? Well, that brings us to a reality that we have to wrestle with today. According to our text in verse, we are accountable and we are answerable to God in this. Our text says that the result of this reality of God's standard is that all of our mouths are shut and that the whole world is held accountable before God. In other words, uh, just like we uh, demand that others get the rules right in the races so that it's fair play, God looks at us in the same way, in a just way. Now, let me talk about the reality of how that applies to life to us today. One of the things we wrestle with in our time is guilt. We don't like to talk about guilt, but we all feel it. We don't like to think about it, but it's there with us. And so I'd like to suggest that we've got real struggles on what true guilt is in our time. 
There are two kinds of guilt we'll work with today, true guilt and false guilt. True guilt is the feeling we have before God and according to his rules of the race and the law in Scripture that say we have been unrighteous, have not lived up to his standard, and even offended him as the Lord and judge of all. False guilt is feeling guilty for things that aren't real. And unfortunately, in our culture, we have false guilt quickly eclipsing real guilt. This week, I learned there's a new holiday in the United States. We had the holiday of National Daughter Day this week. And I found out just a couple of days after it happened, I was reading a, a news feed on like Yahoo or something, and they were publicly shaming a guy, a famous person, for not saying anything to his daughter publicly uh, who were out there. And all of a sudden, I had this thing come over me like, that was false guilt. An arbitrary thing, which is, hey, National Daughter Day is a great thing, and I love my daughter. But to say that you need to be shamed for not saying something to your daughter, in this case, isn't necessarily an issue. Our struggle in our time is we walk around feeling condemned by random rules. The challenge for us in this time is this. Our culture is losing big T truth. But when you lose big T truth, guess what happens? You start feeling big G guilt for everything. All kinds of things. So we struggle with false guilt. And by the way, false guilt can take the form of a scrupulous conscience that feels bad about evil not done, making more of something than actually warranted, like National Daughter Day. This is where our culture is taking us. When you take away the center of what is true and right and with one truth and one God, inevitably you end up feeling guilty about Everyone else's standards. Wouldn't it be better to deal with real guilt and with one in his word, just practically? Now, while we struggle with false guilt in our time, the danger is that we don't deal with true guilt. That's the danger of false guilt, is you don't get to the real thing with God we will not and cannot obey God on our own, and the result is we get lost in the morass of sin and even false guilt. It's like we get off the course of the race, and we end up creating our own little courses, our own little race courses that take us down dark roads, and we get lost. Lostness becomes a part of our life. But in the midst of all this hard news, there's hope. Look at verse 21 of our text. It says, but now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What a great phrase in Scripture, but now. You were in this, but now you've got this with God. Despite our lostness in the race, God comes to the rescue himself, and he does something about it to set us right in the race 
so that we will run with him. Verse 20 says, 21 says, yield. Verse 25 says, God shows his righteousness. What Paul is talking about is that God is bringing something to the table for us. He brings his own righteousness, specifically through Jesus Christ. And the implication is this. Jesus brings righteousness to us as a substitute. A substitute. Jesus brings something different into the world that takes care of us for us. Here's what Christianity says. Jesus came in the world and he climbed up the rope every time and got it right every day. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 years for his entire life. He got the law right every time. But it also says he does other things, which we're going to talk about in a second, to set things right. He runs the race perfectly. That's what the gospel says. And the beauty of that is he runs that race for us. He runs that race for us. What's that got to do with us today? I got great news for you guys. Jesus came as a substitute for you and for me, and with his righteousness, he gets it right for us, things right for you. You can stop trying so hard to fix yourself. You can stop trying so hard to perform for God supremely, even for others, because Christ has performed perfectly for you in his righteousness, even to the cross. Now that alone is great news. You're like, man, if you can take that in and sit with that, that'll change how you actually live your life. Now, another time we'll talk about performance and the value of that, that you need to actually obey and follow Jesus, but not before you get that Jesus has performed for you first, and that covers everything. But here's the issue. We still have this problem hanging around of not living up to God's law, not running the our lives. So what do we do with that? Well, Jesus is a substitute at the cross for us too. Jesus and the cross just comes to life in this text because he is the one who dies to set us straight on the race with God. Look at verse 23. If you want to memorize verses, you should memorize these verses and take them home in your heart because they are great stuff. Look at that. Well, that says with me, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you're like, yes, okay, I know that existentially. I see it in Scripture. And then he says this, and are justified by his grace as a gift through, uh, through the redemption. I can't read. Are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Here's how Jesus, how God's going to set things right with you and me. The text says he does three things at the cross as a substitute for us there. And he uses these fancy words that a lot of us maybe are not familiar with. He uses the word kind of redemption. He uses the word propitiation. Uh, and he uses even... Uh, uh, the word, um, 
He uses redemption, propitiation, and he even uses the word of, of course, the blood language as well. Now let's dive into this and, and, and talk about the cross and the bloody cross of Christ and how that covers us in our sin. Now, at first glance, now I used to think this too, when I, before I was a Christian, I would look at the, the, the cross language or hear my friends talking about the cross and go, what? what's the deal with Christianity? It seems like so primitive. You know, with this guy dying on a cross, why couldn't God, if he's real, just wave all sin? He's all powerful, right? He can do whatever he wants. Why couldn't he just say, okay, you blew it with me. Don't worry about it. Not a big deal. Why couldn't God just do that? Well, I've got two questions for you before I get to the answer, and it's this. If someone really offended you and hurt you deeply, and it was, really, it was so bad it was hard to let go, would you be quick to wave off that person's error? What if someone persistently hurts you with little things and doesn't change over time? Would you be able to blow that off? No, because you have a sense of justice. Well, imagine that times infinity with God and his righteous sense of justice. He cannot change his holiness or his justice and compromise those and be God at the same time, but also just and righteous in what he does with Christ at the cross. That is why Jesus going to the cross is the only way that we can be forgiven, the only way. And if you think God is just the angry God who's going off like the rageaholic father, he's not that. He's love. And his anger is slow in its burn. It's not quick to respond. He's patient in his anger. He's got his anger together, but that still means he's just in his response. What the gospel says is this. In light of our sins against God, somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to pay. And there are three ways listed here on how somebody has to pay. Look at those with me. The cross of Christ justifies us. It redeems us. It appeases God. Let's go backwards with that. First, it says that uh, uh, this tells us how God does it. To get back in the race with God, Christ at the cross must appease God's sense of anger and justice. The technical term for that is propitiate. The imagery here is that of the temple and of sacrifices given, like you see in the Old Testament, for those of you who are Old Testament scholars. And that sacrifice satisfies God's anger. That's what Jesus offers at the cross, is a, a death that propitiates uh, our sin. It was a substitutionary sacrifice that satisfied God's sense of justice once and for all. In God's economy, the blood, the life of someone, must be given when he is offended by sin. Jesus' cross takes away God's wrath and that death for us. Second, it says here, to get back to the race with God, Christ at the cross must redeem us. 
What is redemption? Redemption is kind of business language. When you purchase something or even ransom something out of trouble, typically, kind of like a large corporation or, or the government bailing out a company that's taken a dive because of malfeasance and mismanagement and even bankruptcy. In the same way, we are spiritually bankrupt before God with our sin. And Jesus' death ransoms or redeems us from that sin by paying the price, paying the penalty, so we would be out of debt with God. Third, to get back in the race with God, Christ's cross justifies us. Now, justification is a fancy word, but it's courtroom language. You have it happen every day when you go into downtown Charlotte at the courts. The opposite of justification is condemnation, where a judge makes a statement. But here, we're talking about justification, which is, uh, if you want to put the easy way to say it, just as if I'd never sinned and lived a righteous life. It's both and. Just as if I'd never sinned and lived a righteous life. God sends his son not only to defend us, but to take the judgment we deserve on himself. Let me put it in just kind of stark terms. Jesus goes to hell for you. That's what the cross was. He went to hell for you and for me and for our sin and took on God's condemnation so that in God's courtroom he could say about you, not guilty. And not only not guilty, righteous. You're not only got a clean slate, you're, you've got the righteousness of Christ covering you too. All judges through Christ declares us not guilty. So what does the cross do for you? The cross actually takes away God's anger. It pays the price and justifies us in the court of God. Let me turn around from our point of view. It takes away our guilt. The real guilt we carry around. It removes our constant sense that we need to pay God back and takes away the sense that God is mad at us. Now, I know no one here has ever struggled with any of these things. Christ, in fact, at the cross, has loved us and carried it, been, had justice carried out on him at the same time. Now, some in our time would critique Christianity and say, you know, this sacrificial talk is just kind of hooey. It seems like cosmic child abuse, and I kid you not, that is actually a quote from uh, a certain kind of theologian. <laughs> some would say it seems so unnecessary. What we should do is use Jesus' death as inspiration on how to live sacrificially and to love by giving up everything. Now, you got to know, that is, is actually a biblical application. But it's not a biblical application that you can take in personally until you realize Jesus went to the cross and actually did something for God, not just you. That Jesus, according to our text, and look at this in verse 25, 
something profound happens here of how God is addressed by the cross. And this is what it says in verse 25. This is what not having glasses does to you sometimes. It goes like this. It says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his, that is God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. From a human point of view, you got to understand that the cross can be inspirational, but from God's point of view, it actually says this. Sin is way more dangerous and dark than you and I realize. We want to minimize it, but in our text, it's talking about how serious and dark it can be and how God takes that seriously himself, even when we aren't. Jesus actually did something there at the cross for us. He changed how we could actually be in relationship with God and enjoy him in a living way as a living God. At the cross, he set us straight so that we could run the race with God personally on his path with Christ as our Lord and Savior. You see, verse 26 tells us why God sent Jesus to the cross. It was the only way for God to be God. It was the only way for God to be God in that he would both save us and maintain his integrity as God at the same time. Jesus coming and dying for us as, right, as the righteous one, the spotless lamb, was the only way we could be rescued and God could be God at the same time. If I could say it ten times, I'll say it. So, what does that have to do with us today? Well, the cross of Christ calls all of us here to one thing. Did you notice in our text, four times, it says this, faith, received by faith. Christ's work has to be personally appropriated by faith. Trust, engagement, uh, holding on to. You're not a follower of Jesus today and you're kind of kicking the tires. I've been where you are. I know that feeling of like what to do with all this kind of Christianity stuff. Here's my question to you. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? Do you stuff it down? Kind of like a the show Cheers, when Woody, uh, the, um, uh, the bartender, would, when they asked him, so what's going on? You know, how do you deal with your hard feelings? I, think, I just stuff it right down like this all the time, and everybody goes, whoa. If you're stuffing your guilt, that's what's going to happen to you. I encourage you to come to know Jesus Christ for the first time. Call on him. Go home tonight. Find a quiet place in your home or on your back porch, wherever's comfortable for you, and pray to God and say, God, I have sinned, and I got guilt. And I realize now I can't handle it anymore. I need you to handle it for me. Jesus, rescue me. Rescue me. That is how you become a Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you experienced forgiveness? 
I mean in your soul, where you know you've been doing things, and we Christians, we get so busy serving God that we don't have time to stay. But it's all got to start with forgiveness, where you're not going to repent until you've tasted Jesus yourself, until you've tasted the cross again. Don't you understand For all the sins you bring to the table, even those you do as a Christian, Jesus has died for those too. You can come to him again and again. He wants you to, again and again, finding your life in him. Christianity is not meant to be abstract thinking. It's intended to give you life and freedom from guilt. You see, Christ crucified wins the race for you. There's another race I want to tell you about. It's one of my uh, favorite stories. I've even told it here, I think, before, but I'll say it again. Back in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics, uh, there was a racer named Derek Redman. And he, he uh, was a 400-meter uh, sprinter uh, for Britain. And... Um, he was very good. He actually was so good, he had won the world championship, and he had won a gold medal in a prior uh, place. Now, the interesting thing about Derek Redman was really doing well in the races leading up to the semifinal of the 1992 Olympics. And uh, he was expected to compete for the gold, and so the semifinal came up. He was in the race the first 250 meters. He was killing it killing it. And then it happened. His hamstring popped. All his dreams for years suddenly came to a a screaming halt. Redmond stopped and then tried on his own to limp to the finish line, but he was in such pain and was feeling so much defeat, he finally crumpled to the ground. The, some of the officials from the, uh, the Olympic meet came out with a, a stretcher to try and take him away. But then something happened that nobody saw coming. This man comes from the actual stands and says, Hey, everybody, get out of the way. Get, get away from him. I'll take care of this. It was Derek's dad, Jim. Jim picked up Derek and you can see this on videos, literally walked him to the finish line. Derek just weeping with such sadness. Derek was technically disqualified. But anybody who's seen this video, anybody who knows the story knows that none of us think about that. All we remember is Derek's dad carried him to the finish line. Christ crucified carries you to the finish line. Trust him today. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful so much that you have loved us um, and that we talk, while we talk about hard things like sin, how we don't measure up, and we all carry around some kind of guilt, I pray this week that you would help us to walk away and you would help us to know that we are forgiven fully and finally through what Jesus has done on the cross for us. I pray for those who are really 
struggling with Christianity, whether it's real or not, that you would call their hearts, Lord, to see that they can't fix themselves or their guilt. They can't right themselves. They need you. Lord, I also pray for those of us who've been following you a long time, that you would renew within us a fresh sense of how broken we really are and still are, and yet you would turn our eyes away from our performance to the cross yet again, enjoying and sitting for us 2,000 years ago with Jesus. I need it. We need it even now in Christ's name.